This is the Commonwealth City Church Podcast. Thanks for listening. Commonwealth is a church in Lexington, Kentucky. For more info, visit our website at commonwealthcitychurch.com and follow us on Instagram at comcitychurch. We hope you enjoy the message. Today we're talking about the Lord's Supper, and I want to introduce that before we stand together and read the word there's a lot of ground we could cover with it. And, I th- and you might be thinking to yourself, Andrew, I thought you all were preaching through the gospel of John. Well, the reason we're talking about the Lord's Supper in John 13, 1 through 4, this is not the stand and read part. This is just the show you where we're at part. But in John 13, verses 1 through 4, it sets the stage of Jesus in the week of Passover being with his disciples. And it says this, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus had come to depart out of this world, To the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, that's this last supper, when the devil had already been put into the heart of Judas Iscariot. We're not getting into all that today. Um, He ended up laying, laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel around his waist. If you know anything about what's coming in this text, you know that he's getting ready to wash the disciples' feet. We're leaving all that for next week. Brian's going to be leading us in that next week. We're leaving all of that for next week. And we're taking a moment today to teach the narrative of what this supper is all about. We do these communion stations every week. We invite people to to take, eat, and remember every single week. And I think sometimes we might do that a little nonchalantly. And so we're going to take the opportunity to collectively learn from, from the Lord what his table is about and who he is in inviting us there. Um, this is not going to be like a doctrinal lecture on the Lord's Supper, and it could be. Like, if you're interested in all the doctrinal stuff about the Lord's Supper from big words, if you know these, you'll, you'll, you'll be right with me. Words like transubstantiation or consubstantiation or sacrament or ordinance. Please buy me a cup of coffee, and we'll sit down and talk about it. I want, I want you to know that you are invited to that conversation. It's just not going to be today. Okay, it's just not going to be today. Um, so with that, we're going to add an emphasis that the Lord's Supper is not just a normal meal. It's not a normal meal. It's an abnormal meal. It's an important meal. It's a ridiculously important meal. But while it's not a normal meal, the hope is that it affects every normal meal you have for the rest of your life. From this table that's special makes every table special. And so I invite you to stand. We're going to be in Luke chapter 22, actually. A little curveball there. Luke chapter 22, verses 19 and 20. I invite you to stand the reading of the word on your phones, and your Bibles, on the app, on the screen. Luke 22, 19 and 20, the word of the Lord says this. And he took bread when he had given thanks. He broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Let's pray. Jesus, we just pray that um, as we just continue to proclaim and declare your goodness today, uh, that you just move our hearts, impact our hearts, meet our hearts this morning, continue to meet our hearts this morning, continue to grow all that your spirit is planted and planting in us. Continue to grow that. Harvest that today. Lord, we just pray that as we posture ourselves under the authority of you and your word, that your heart lands on good soil. Father, we pray that you do the work of making good soil of our hearts today, our minds and our souls. Lord, we love you. We thank you. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.
So we're diving right in. I'm Andrew, by the way. I have been up here in a couple weeks, and I know that we've got some new people here all the time. So it's great to see you. Um, if I don't know you, I would love to get to know you. And it's talking about tables today, talking about the Lord's table. We're going to be spending some time talking about what it means to be known and what it means that the ta- what the table invites us to do. And so the first thing we see as we get into this is, is I use this phrase a lot, but it's the phrase remember and participate. Remember and participate. I say almost every week that we do, um, that, I, that I introduce the Lord's Supper or communion at the end of our services, that it's an invitation to both remember and to participate. So we're going to break today up into two segments, a remembrance segment and a participation segment as we get invited to the table today. Now, you might be asking, why do we do the Lord's Supper every week? I've done this my whole life. I don't remember your first encounter with the Lord's Supper or with communion, whatever it is that you more commonly call it. Um, communion is an interesting word because communion can be just like being together. Like communion is togetherness and the Lord's Supper seems to add an extra emphasis. You might have grown up in a church tradition that did it every week. You might have grown up in a church tradition that did it like once a quarter or maybe once a month. Uh, I don't know what your experience is concerning the Lord's table, but I remember mine growing up. I'm a preacher's kid, and I remember the deacons would all show up at the front, and they'd carry around these really ornate trays that, like, were super pretty and fragile. That's all I knew is that they were fragile. And I also knew by the direction of my mother that grape juice stained a lot. And so, like, I remember growing up, and I wasn't a Christian yet. I wasn't a follower of Jesus. And I remember, like, wanting so badly to know how good Jesus' food tasted. You know, like, I've had mom's food. It's decent. How good is Jesus' food? And it would pass, and mom would be like, no, you can't take it. You've not been baptized. And I'm like, well, get me baptized. Like, I want to try this food. (laughs) Joke's on them, though. Preacher's kid knew where the kitchen was in the church. And let me tell you, the the crackers were not all that. All right, like, I think Jesus is probably a better cook. I think we're going to get to heaven, and Jesus is going to be like, Listen, of all the ways you offended me, like, I'm a much better cook than whatever these things are. You know, like, I think we're really going to learn that. So I don't know what your first interaction was with the Lord's table, but even that approach kind of shows that sometimes we treat it as so ritualistic and routine and just part of the rhythm as opposed to really understanding the weight. And so the first thing we're going to say in Luke 22, use this phrase, do this in remembrance. What is it that we are invited to remember? Now, there are multiple places in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see the interaction that Jesus has with the actual breaking of the bread and taking of the cup. He does this in each one of those gospels gives, gives an outline of this story. John does not, which is why we're taking today as the moment to give the dialogue portion of the meal to you all. John actually gives a much greater picture of everything that happened in that room, and we're going to get to hear about that next week. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, if you know anything, like there are some chapters in the Bible that are just like, these are good to know. 1 Corinthians 13 is, anybody, what chapter? About what? Love. You know, if you've been to any weddings this year, you've probably heard 1 Corinthians 13. Um, Hebrews chapter 11 is like the the hall of faith. You know, it's a, Romans chapter 8 is like spirit empowerment. Like there's these chapters of the Bible that are kind of notable. And one of those is 1 Corinthians 11 as it's the instructions to the church on the taking of the Lord's Supper. And so we're actually going to look there in verse 23 through 26. Paul writes this, so you can read it with me. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night that, he, that when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the 
took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I've got that part bolded in our, in our slide. It's a really, really important bit of, bit of information, bit of instruction there for you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, again, not going to be able to cover everything today that we would normally like to cover historically or, or what was going on contextually. The original Lord's Supper took place during the Passover meal. I could go into that for 20 minutes. I'm going to give you 30 seconds. It was a yearly festival that the Jewish people celebrated to remember God leading them out of Israel, leading them out of Egypt into the promised land, ultimately the place of Israel, ultimately Jerusalem, where they were, leading them out and delivering them. And so it was this meal that took place every single year, and that was what was happening. This was the night before he was arrested, or the night he ended up being arrested a little bit later on, and this was his last Supper with his disciples. So do this in remembrance. And then we see the phrase, the taking of the Lord's Supper is an announcement and declaration of his death. For as long as you eat and drink, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So look at this next one. What is it that we remember? We remember his death. We remember his death. The taking of the Lord's Supper is an announcement and a declaration of the death of Christ. Now, what does that mean? Well, that means that every single time that you go up to one of these tables. You're not going up because the guys on stage said, hey, go to one of the tables, okay? That's not why you're going up. You're not going up because it's your weekly moment to like, you know, get things, like I have to do this so that my Christian feng shui is not like swung out of balance. You know, if I don't do this, I'm gonna be like out of balance. It's not like we don't treat the table like we treat an oil change in our car, like needed maintenance. You with me? That when you come take and participate of the table of the Lord, it is a declaration of his death. Now, what does that mean? It is an announcement. You are preaching when you come to that table. We might say that preaching, you might think, oh, the preacher in the room is Andrew. No, 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 the preacher of the room. If we know the word, which means to proclaim or to herald, if you know anything about like old school armies, and we don't do this anymore, but like old school armies with the buglers, you know, like, or, or even at a Kentucky football game or a horse race, the call to the post is a heralding that something really important is about to happen. And the Bible actually says that as a proclaimer of the gospel, you're a herald, the bugle's in your hands, you're announcing the person of God to the world, and you preach that every single time you come to this table. Every single time you break bread and take the cup, you're a preacher of that. Now, what is it that you're preaching? You're preaching two things. Stuff that we're saved from, that's going to be the remembrance part, and things that we're saved for. So we're going to deal with the first question. What are we saved from? Now, we could go around the room and let you shout out a bunch of things, and they would probably all be right. I trust the spiritual wherewithal, the biblical wherewithal in this in this room, that we would get a lot of these answers right. We could go through, and I, if I had more time, I would love to do that, and honestly, this is a great little challenge. Like, invite people that you're in discipling relationships with to confess with their mouths and to declare, God, you saved me from this. That's a great practice. Jesus, you saved me from this, and I need to give you credit for that. I need to remind myself and those around me, I need you to be reminded, you saved me from this, so let's go over some of these. What are some things we're saved from? This is just a small collection that I've got here. Sin. That one seems obvious. We're saved from sin. 
And, and that's such like a, a Christianese word. I was actually doing a wedding not long ago of a, of a couple and a lot of family were for Europe. And the, the, the groom said to me, he was like, don't use the word sin in the wedding because I don't, my family's not believers. And when they hear the word sin, they're going to immediately categorize everything you're saying as religious and not for them. So don't use the word sin. Use the word broken, use the word um, missed the mark, use the word fell short, use any synonyms that you can think of, but don't use the word sin. But we sometimes still have to talk about this concept of what sin is. Sin is missing God's standard. And you know who's done it? All of us. Every single one of us has. In fact, that leads us to the next thing that he has saved us from. He has saved us from guilt. He saved us from guilt. You know what guilt is? Guilt is the fact that you broke the rules. You're guilty. I'm guilty. We're guilty. If I go speeding down the interstate and get a ticket in my car, you know, it's not this like sense of moralistic, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Like, no, I've got a citation. It declares that I am guilty, that I was going 20 over. I haven't been, by the way. Insurance agent, if you're listening, I haven't been. Um, 20 over, uh, you know, in, in, a, in, a, in a 65 or whatever. It's a guilty ticket. We talked about this a couple weeks ago that the freedom we get in the gospel in Colossians chapter two is that there's this record of, of debt that's held against you and I and the work of the cross nails it to the cross forever disarming someone of using your guilt as an object of shame, which is another thing that, that we are saved from. We're saved from shame. If guilt is, the, is not, not the feeling, but the fact that you broke the rules, shame is the feeling that you broke the rules. Shame sometimes uses other people but a lot of time it's a battle on your own. Like you're already ashamed of things, so you hide. So you cover up. So you flake on appointments and interactions. So you, you, you mask yourself. It competes. Shame competes for your mind. All the places that you failed, you're aware of. Every single one of them. You're aware, and that feeling haunts you. In fact, when we were sitting, I was sitting down here by Patrick and Rebecca. We were singing that goodness song. And I didn't have this in the notes. Quite frankly, I didn't know we were singing it today. And so I showed up today, and I'm like, your goodness chasing after me is the thing that sets my shame free. Like, your goodness chasing me down. I don't know if you've seen those videos or, or maybe even just a football game of somebody being, like, swarm tackled. You know, like, maybe it's a video of people coming back and reuniting. Like, a lot of times I see it with, like, military folks that are coming home and, and just, like, bombarded with an avalanche of love and hug and all that stuff. Or if you're watching a football game where it doesn't feel nearly as emotionally exciting that someone's getting gang-tackled, ta gang like, that's the feeling of God's goodness running us down, chasing after us, swarming us, because he saves us from shame. He has saved you from that. I don't have this one on the screen, but I was again reminded of it because I was listening to the song earlier that we know him as a father and a friend. His, what he saves us from is from being an orphan. He saves us from being an orphan. We didn't have a dad. We didn't have a relationship with our spiritual dad because of sin that had broken it and forever separated us from the love of our father. But the work of Jesus says we're not orphans anymore. We can be adopted into his family. In fact, marriage and adoption, I think, are the two grandest pictures of the gospel available to us in our world, which is why that when, when I get to do a wedding, I say, thank you for choosing marriage. Thanks for not just treating this lightly. Thanks for honoring Jesus, because this is a great depiction of the gospel. Same thing we would say to foster care and adoption. I don't know that there's a better imagery than those two specific things, because nobody's biologically born a Christian. 
every single one of us are adopted. Orphan and the enemy. He makes us a father and a friend. What else are we saved from when we declare who God is at the table? His body and broken, or his body and blood broken and shed for us. We're saved from condemnation. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ. We're saved from fear. We're saved from sorrow. And we'll get on this high horse a minute. Some of y'all are like totally bummed out. Your day's ruined because Kentucky lost to Florida yesterday. Okay? Listen, if that's your definition of sorrows in the world, it's not sorrowful. Okay, what a bunch of 18 to 21-year-olds do on a Saturday isn't sorrowful. What happened to Felipe Franks? Maybe sorrowful. What happened to Terry Wilson? You know, those kind of injuries, definitely. But I'm not naive to the sorrows of the world. And the gospel saves us from them. I'm not naive to what cancer does to a family. I'm not naive to what abuse does to relationships. I'm not naive to, to what injustice does to relationships all around the world. I'm not naive to what racism has done to our country, to people that I dearly love. I'm not naive to what sex trafficking and childhood slavery and all that stuff does in our world. I'm not naive to those things. Like we live in a broken, distorted perverted world from the point of creation of Eden. We live in it, and the gospel saves us from it having to be our reality. Gives us a hope. Leads us to imagine what a world would look like without the despair of sin in it. Saves us from death. Absolutely, the gospel saves us from death. Provides us life in Jesus. Death, where is your sting? In Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, oh, death, where is your sting? There is no sting to you anymore. We, I'm going to go to a funeral probably next week of a saint, a lady. Her name is Mama Lou, and I've known Mama Lou for as long as I have probably feel like I can remember. And she's been a, uh, just a huge part of my home church growing up and a huge investment in my life. And she is, is on what is her last days. Um, in fact, asking the Lord to take her home every single day and asking other people to pray that as well. There is no fear in her death. She doesn't live in a fear and a worry and an anxiety because she's been saved from the pains of death. We've been saved from separation. We've been saved from the the righteous, just wrath of God. That's what the table offers us. It's body and blood broken and shed for us that we've been saved from the wrath of God. 1 Corinthians 11, 27 through 33, let's look on. It invites us to examine ourselves as we keep going uh, in 1 Corinthians 11. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself or themselves. Then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. It seems like something we should pay attention to. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. He, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. That's a really important part. I'm going to try to speed through this because we don't have a, a whole lot of time left. Examine yourselves. There's an older version of the text, King James, New King James, would say, don't take and eat in an unworthily manner. Don't do so in an unworthily manner, in a manner that's unworthy to the gospel. And here's here's why. As I was preparing for this talk, preparing for this message, preparing for this invitation to the Lord's table, I stumbled on the thing that I know as a communicator of truth, as a communicator that's a, a preacher or teacher, 
that I sometimes am guilty of doing, and that's that I spend time in the text, spend time in the word for everyone else's sake. I'm doing it to teach it. But this one stopped me dead in my tracks because there are times that I don't go to the table with the right motivation. There are times in this room here that I've thought to myself, well, everybody expects you to go to the table because you're a pastor, and you know what I do? I go up there to it. There are times in this room where I'm like, oh, you better go like check, check the box. It's, it's the time of the service that I've not examined myself and sought and, and remembered and gave a moment to say, Jesus, what have you saved me from? Like, who have you made me to be? What is different about my life because of who you are on the cross and resurrected now forever reigning in glory? Who am I now because of what you've done? How have you transformed me and not just informed me? How have you made me new? There are plenty of times that I have gone to a table and failed to do that. And it stopped me dead in my tracks. Because the reality is when we look, when we look at this and we're invited to examine ourselves, I think we've got some, some things written down of what that could be. We could, we could go in an unworthy manner from a motivation standpoint of, hey, we're just supposed to. Or even I've got to get like my Jesus maintenance. So this is my car maintenance moment. I got to go get the bread and the juice to an expectation other people expect me to. My girlfriend or my boyfriend that's here today that I came to church with, they expect me to go to the table because they're going, so you go. Or mom or dad are here. I'm going to home church with mom or dad, and they offer communion, so I better go. That way they don't think anybody, anything's crazy in my life. And there's no if, like inventory taken of, do I trust in this work, body and blood, broken and shed for me? Do I submit my life to Jesus as the only thing that saves because it says if you don't, you eat and drink judgment on your life. If you're a believer, that's great news because the judgment on your life was poured out in Jesus. If you're not a believer, if you're not a believer in Jesus, that's terrifying. I would stay away from that. But I would stay away from it unless he invites you to it, in which case I would run after it as fast as I could. Hardened heart. You know you're living in sin. You don't care. Be careful about going to that table. If there's a place of callous of like, nope, I know. I know I need to, I know I need to change, but I can't. Be careful. Be cautious. I say that to my heart too because there are times that life and ministry, things you do get calluses. Those become places that lack sensitivity. A callus is a place that lacks sensitivity where you're not listening and responding to the urging of the Holy Spirit or for approval of other people's approval. John chapter 6, verse 50. Jesus says, um, this is the bread that comes from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. This is really important that we examine ourselves before we go participate of that bread. That's right after he fed 5,000 with loaves and fish. He was like, that was cool. What I've got is better. Listen, I'm gonna have a little moment of confession here. I love, I love, absolutely love to cook. It's one of my favorite things to do. If I was doing anything other than this job, I think I would probably go to culinary school. I love it. I don't know why I love it. I think it's because I love to eat. Right on. You know? And um, I love to invite people into it. Uh, I love to, to make it as communal as possible. 
Um, actually, on Fridays, I try to use Fridays as a Sabbath day in my life, so there's a little bit of transparency. And I've learned that I have a hard time shutting my, he- my head off, like shutting my mind off and not working. And so, and like, resting and relaxing are two totally different things. I don't know if you're aware of that or not. I can relax with the best of them, but I might rest none in that moment, okay? So I've had to learn how to rest, and sometimes rest actually requires me breaking a sweat or doing something active to make my mind rest from the things that it normally is consumed with. Are you with me? And I found out that one of those things is cooking. It, it invokes creativity. It, it invites all my senses. I get to be imaginative. And I can share it with other people. And so a lot of times on Fridays, we'll do like Sabbath meals with people and just invite a bunch of people over. So I'm going to show you one. I uh, got to do a, a red Thai-inspired curry, chicken curry. Um, yeah, a couple weeks ago with Justin and Victoria and then some other folks that, that we all invited to, to be together. And this was not just like me throwing down. This was all of us, like we had stations, we had like assembly lines, like people were throwing all sorts of stuff together. It was like constantly tasting, adjusting, all that stuff. But, but here's the thing, I was proud. I was proud of this. As you can see, it's Instagram worthy. I was proud of, of my, my red Thai curry right there. But even though it was delicious, I had a checklist of things that could be better. I was like, okay, could have used better ingredients. I wish I could have found fresh bean sprouts. I had to use the can, didn't really, wasn't really down with that. You know, I wish, I wish that it could have, um, the plate is a little dirty right down there at the bottom. Like, I wish my presentation was a little better. I'm trying to score good on chopped here, y'all, you know? Like, and, and so I was going through all this checklist uh, of things that could have been better about this meal. So here's my confession. I am not, cook, I am not to cooking what Jesus is to salvation. And here's what I mean by that. Because I hope you enjoy a dish that I would prepare for you, even though my mind is running with a list of what could have been better. But when Jesus offers you that table, it's as good as he could have done. And he knows it. He knows it. It doesn't get better than his body and his blood broken and shed for you. His invitation is take, eat, remember, and live. Take, eat, remember, and live. Got a few more minutes that's the remembrance part. We're going to dive into the participation part. I feel like, Kurt, I would love to know how many times we've quoted John 17 as we've talked through the book of John, it, almost every week. But the participation part as a commissioning of understanding the Lord's table is found in John 17. You're going to see verse 18 and then 22 through 23. Jesus is saying this in a prayer to the Father. As you sent me into the world, so have I sent them. That's us, followers of Jesus. I've sent them into the world. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them that they may be one even as we are one in them and you and me. I in them and you and me. They may become perfectly one so that the world will know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Here becomes a participation moment. What are we saved for? It's one. Or what are we saved from is one. Now it's what are we saved for? What does it look like to not just be invited to that table to remember, but to leave that table with the confidence that you can participate we are saved for joy. Here go the list. Now we could get an exhaustive list. I tried to narrow it down. We're, we are saved for joy. We are not invited in a faith following Jesus to be enslaved to a moralistic deity. That's not what Christianity is. It's not keeping the rules. It's not just changing your behavior. It's not, you know, responding to, oh my goodness, Saturday night got a little crazy. I need to go to church to hit the reset button. Okay, that is not what Christianity is. And if you came here today, that might have been the motivation that brought you here, but I hope you leave with something a lot more confident than that. 
in Christ. It's for joy. You've been saved for joy. You've been saved to delight. You've been saved to be satisfied. Remember when I said that Jesus, when he, like when I offer you a plate, I hope it's the best thing you've ever had. When Jesus offers you a plate, he knows it's the best thing you've ever had and that is the only thing that can ever satisfy. That's why when he says, taste and see that the Lord is good in the Psalms, when, when the psalmist writes that, I feel like chef Jesus in the back like, yeah, it's real good. You're gonna love this. You're just, it's never gonna be able to get an all-you-can-eat buffet of my grace for you all the time. So he saves you for joy. He saves you to live in the righteousness of Christ. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 21 says that, that he who knew no sin became sin. That's the first half of the gospel, first half of the good news, became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the second half of the gospel. That means that all of my unrighteousness gets Put on Jesus, every bit of it, mine and yours, every bit of it. Today's, yesterday's, and tomorrow's, all of it goes on Jesus, and every bit of his righteousness goes on me and you, which means when he's doing the like history search of your life and your browser, but your life, when he's doing the history search, you've never messed up if you believe in Jesus. Isn't that insane? Talk about disarming shame. When he does the history search of your life, You've never messed up if you trust in Jesus. That's how good his righteousness is to replace your unrighteousness at the cross of Christ. That's what we've been saved for, to live in the righteousness of Christ, to be sanctified, which is a fancy way of saying to be made holy or to be made into the image of Jesus, to be glorified, meaning that we don't get death. It doesn't end in the ground for those that believe Christ. We are saved for eternal glorification and gratification, to have freedom. It's for freedom, brothers and sisters, that Christ has set you free. Do not be enslaved anymore to a yoke of slavery, to join Jesus' mission in the world. You were sought after. After, to join Jesus' mission. In fact, Ephesians chapter one says, before the foundations of the earth, the church, the people of God on the planet were predestined before the foundations of the earth to be the vessel that reunites everything unto Christ. You were saved for reconciliation. Second Corinthians chapter five, you now have a ministry of reconciliation. You know what that means? That in your freedom in Christ, on this side of leaving that table, you're supposed to walk into conflict and bring peace every time. You got conflict in your family? Don't run from it. Run to it with Jesus because he's there. Got conflict in your relationships? Got conflict in your, in your life? You go to bat for those that, are, that have faced injustice? You're a, you have a ministry of reconciliation. You are saved to bear fruit and you're saved to worship. You're saved to worship. And that's how we're going to end today looking at this worship. In Hebrews chapter 12, Verse 28, I'm going to go quick here, so you're going to have to ride along. 28 through 13, verse 2, says this. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We preached on this about a year ago. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And then chapter 13 begins, let brother love, the same thought, let brother love continue. And do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Isn't this funny? That when it says... Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship that the very next thing the Spirit would put on the author of Hebrews is that you're supposed to be people of hospitality. Like, directly tied to where it doesn't say sing loud. It doesn't say have, like, Bethel Jam session in your car to your windshield. Okay, like, that's, I'm sure Jesus is glorified by that, but that's not, like, number one acceptable worship on the list here. 
that somehow there is this understanding tied to acceptable worship with showing hospitality. You want to know why? Because your story of salvation is the story of hospitality. Jesus had a table, and he invited you to it. You were an enemy, and he called you a friend. You were a stranger, and he saw you. He found you. You're known. He knows you. He knows every part of you. He knows every part that you're proud of, and he knows every part that you're ashamed of. And he calls you a son or a daughter if you believe in him. Your story of salvation is a story of radical hospitality. Every story of salvation is the story of radical hospitality. So check this out. Accept a worship. Don't neglect hospitality. It's the Greek word phylozenos. It means that you love the stranger. Before you are anything else in life, before I'm a pastor, before Kurt's a pastor, before you're a nurse or a doctor, before you're a lawyer, before you're a teacher, before you're a student, before you're a son or a daughter or brother of your actual family or brother or sister or a husband or a wife, before you're any of those things, you're a guest at this table if you're a believer in Jesus. You're a guest. I would invite you to look around. Look who's seated next to you. Just think of who's seated next to you in the world. Do you know that you have more in common with a Pakistani believer than your next door neighbor that's not a Christian? More in common, way more. You have more in common with a husband and a wife that hide every single week to go to church in China and worship Jesus than you do with your family member that's not a believer in Jesus. You have more in common than your actual DNA. So look around at his table at who's sitting there with you. But being a dearly loved guest at his table, that's the remember portion. Invites you to be a radically loving host to the rest of the world. So you are a guest. That's part of your identity at his table, and you get to proclaim it and preach it every single week. But when you walk away from it, know that he's inviting you, commissioning you, encouraging you to go set your own tables with the goodness of Jesus, with the gospel, with loving people towards Christ, and participate as a host to the rest of the world. That there are people in your family that need to sit at your table, that need to be hosted by you towards Christ. There are people on your street that need to be hosted by you towards Jesus. There are students. There are international students. There are people from other walks of life. Sometimes God's even going to call some of you to get on a plane and fly and build a house in another country and take that table and host strangers there to Jesus there too. He's going to ask you to do that. And so I always ask this question when I come to, to looking at this. What does Jesus' table look like? We look at Revelation 5, Revelation 7, a multitude, all nations, all tribes, tongues, languages. What does this table look like? Gosh, it's unbelievably diverse. It doesn't make sense. It has the prostitute next to the woman whose husband cheated on her with the prostitute. It has both there. He loves them both. It has, it has a KKK member that's given his life to Jesus and a family of a young man that was lynched has it at the same table if, if they follow. Like his table radically pulled. How do I know that? Because it includes the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul killed people, and yet he sat at Jesus' table, and so are the family members of those that he killed. They're right there. His table is incredibly diverse. It doesn't make sense. It has diversity across every line, young and old, ethnicities, uh, backgrounds from former religions, all sorts of things. Every conflict imaginable is available at his table, should be historically. So now let's ask a question. That's a table we're a guest at. 
We're in there. Now let's ask a question. What does your table look like? Does yours make sense? Is everybody at your table, does that make sense to everybody from your hometown? Oh, you've hung out with them for 20 years. That's great. You know, or, or all your friends from your dorm or your friends from your Christian group or your friends from your home group or your family group or the ministry you're a part of. If your table constantly makes sense, it might not look like Jesus's. And so here's the participation moment. You're invited to have a table that looks like Jesus, which means you've got to go meet people where they are and do the work of inviting them to be friends where they're not. So what does your table look like? I watched a documentary this week on 9-11. And uh, it was just talking about a group of high school students that shared a city block with the trade towers. And after the planes hit and they um, were, were evacuated, they were walking uptown. There was, nobody had phones. I mean, cell phones were down everywhere. The, actually, the South Tower was a cell phone tower, so most of New York didn't have cell phone coverage. The subways were all blocked. Um, and so nobody was being able to go on the subways. And this was a group of high school students that was a commuter school from all over the area. And so the only way they had to get home was the subway, and they didn't have phones. And, and they finally found one student with a phone, and um, one of the young men was Muslim. He was from uh, Afghanistan, or from Pakistan. And uh, he was nervous, obviously, and scared, and already been receiving a ton of threats and, and whatnot. He was just trying to find his parents. He was just trying to let his parents know that he was okay and that he was trying to get home. And, you know, the same issues that they were having trying to get on the phone, their parents were having trying to get a hold of them. And so this 18-year-old kid, he's talking to his dad, who's like a dentist in Queens, New York. And, and his dad gets on the phone with him, and he says, I don't have time to talk long. Here's the only thing I'm going to say to you. Get home. Just survive. Now you can imagine the trauma of that day, the fear, the paranoia, just survive. And I'm reminded as I watch that, that when it comes to Jesus' this table, Jesus doesn't say just survive. He says take, eat, and flourish. Take, eat, and be fulfilled. Take, eat, and be satisfied. Take, eat. You're not going to limp and crawl to heaven. You're going to get there victoriously for eternity. And so I want to invite you to these questions as we move to a time of communion today. And approaching the table, what is the Holy Spirit urging and leading you to remember? What you're saved from, what you're saved for. You need to do some work of examining yourself, what you can confess. And don't feel like this has to be a conversation just with you and God. Sure, invite other people into it. Please, if this doesn't seem obvious and you're married, invite your spouse into that conversation. Invite your kids into it. Invite the person you're dating into it or engaged to. Invite the friend you came with today. And it doesn't even have to take place the 30 seconds before you go to the table. You can have that conversation all week. What is the Holy Spirit urging and leading you to remember? And the second one, and walking from the table. How is the Holy Spirit asking you to participate as a member of his family in the world? What is he cheering you on to say, I want your table to look like this. I want it to include that person. I want it to include them. I want you to radically love them. I want you to show grace to people that don't deserve it. What is he urging you and asking you to participate as a member of his family in the world? So let's ponder these questions. And let's take, eat, remember, and participate.